Hello and welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another Historical Humans podcast. This is episode one of season three. Woo! Following with our tradition from last year, we're going to be continuing on the topic of the cons, today focusing on the Khanites. My name's Justin Woods, and I'm joined today by my fellow co-host, Colm Coleman, and welcome to season three. Yes, uh, this is the kickoff of, uh, of our third year of doing this, um, and as a nod to what we did at the start of our second year, which was our video on the Great Cons, uh, we're going to be doing our follow-up piece, because when we tried to do the Cons of Mongolia, we realized that there was just so much information about these people spanning so many centuries that we had to split it in two. And so, uh, if you want to hear about Genghis Khan and the founding of the Mongolian Empire, uh, we recommend you go all the way back to the Season 2 uh, video. Which we'll have yeah. it linked down below in the show notes and the video description, so please give it a check. See what the uh, early versions of history for the Khan Empire is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, yeah, see the founding. Um that video did conclude with uh, the ascension of Kublai Khan, uh, great band as uh, as the Khan of uh, you know of basically everything. And since he is the last uh, Khan that is universally recognized, uh, we will be picking up with his reign uh, as we see the Khan uh, as we see the Mongolian Empire fracture into a number of uh, what we are lovingly calling Khanites, which are uh, basically, many Mongolian empires uh, run by people who each claim to be Khan of all things. <laughs> and the way the Mongols worked was you had to claim to be the Khan of all, so they were yeah. all claiming to be the top god. Yeah. yeah, you know, it's, you know, basically, you know, the Khan of Mongolia is effectively the Khan of all Mongols and thus emperor of the world at this point. So, you know, it's your your king of one, your king of all. Um it's it, it's it's kind of like being a pope. You know, <laughs> multiple popes means you're going to fight massively. Oh no, are we going to end up talking about the year of three popes? Uh that's not on the list for this year, but uh who knows when that comes up. Oh no. Dun dun dun. <laughs> yeah. So, our first breakaway faction that we're going to be talking about for the Khanites is uh, the Wan Dynasty of China. This dynasty goes uh, begins in 1279 and ends in 1368. And it begins, uh, fittingly enough, with our man Kublai when he conquers and overthrows the Song Dynasty of China in 1279. Uh, whereupon, he makes himself Emperor of China. And this is the last new territory that the Mongolians add to their empire. So the for, the the apex, so to speak, of the Mongol yeah. Empire as a yeah. whole. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. This is. This is when they reach their largest size, and then they immediately fragment. Now, what's very interesting about this is Kublai does something that's very atypical of a conquering Mongolian Khan. He forbids the murder of the Song Dynasty or the people who supported them. Usually, if you resist the coming of a Khan, your city is burnt to the ground, your rulers are slaughtered, and your entire population is enslaved. 
He does not do this. This marks a shift in policy away from the nomadic raiders uh, that are typically the image we see of the cons towards people who are settled and who are interested in long-term governance. And you can see how trying to settle down and govern things really causes fragmentation among a group that has been purely expansionistic up to this point. Not everyone agrees with these policies. Or that uh, Kublai should be the man implementing them. You know, kids these days, they just want to settle down in cities. They don't want to conquer new territories like we did in the good old days. Yep. They've gotten soft. <laughs> They've gotten yep. weak. <laughs> yep. Now, that is not to say that Kublai and the other cons do not make other attempts at conquest, merely that those attempts are not successful. The two main attempts for the uh, Wan Dynasty are the invasions of Japan, uh, which are carried out uh, in 1274 and 1281. Now, both of these invasions are thwarted by kamikaze, which is the Japanese word for divine wind. Because both times when the Mongolians reached sight of the Japanese shores, a hurricane came through and annihilated the Mongolian fleet. <laughs> Hate when that happens. And it's weird that it happens back to back. <laughs> and, you know, so it leads to the Japanese mythos that Japan is protected by a kamikaze, a divine wind, because the literal conquerors of the earth keep getting destroyed by Mother Nature every time they try to reach Japan. Not not a bad way to be protected, if we're going to be honest. Yeah. If God himself protects you from these invaders. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing. It's horribly misused in the 20th century. Uh, we're not going to talk about yeah. the bastardization of the word. Yeah. <laughs> Yep, because yep, uh, our job today is to talk about Kublai. Now, Kublai is the greatest of the Wan Dynasty Khans. After he dies, things immediately go downhill for the Chinese branch of the Khan, of, of the uh, Mongolians. Let me guess. Infighting, arguing. Yep. The, the yep. usual. Oh. Well, no, no, it is a... Uh... There is infighting, and the first issue that comes up is a man named Temurkan, who is Kublai's grandson, takes over the empire in 1295 following Kublai's death. He will rule for 12 years, and he is one of the few uh, Wan Dynasty Khans that is actually capable. Um, he has to fend off brand, uh, multiple attacks from a rival branch of Genghis Khan's family, uh, because everyone who claims a Khan, a, uh, to be a Khan is descended from Genghis Khan. And following the death of Kublai, the Ogedai branch decide that they are uh, more fitted to rule as the Khan of all things than, uh, than Kublai's family are. Uh, so Temur does successfully defeat a man named uh, Kaidu, who is Ogadai's grandson, in 1301. I hate how much and, these names sound like Star Wars names. Yeah. 
you you could write a whole Star Wars episode. <laughs> These are they're just all Jedi and Sith. They really are. That's what it sounds yeah. like. Yeah, yeah. As you know, we're, we're we're going through the history of the Sith Empire after <laughs> after Kublai dies, Temur rises up, but must just defeat his rival from another branch of Sith, a man named Kaidu. That's oh. basically that's, listen. Listen, the cons are you know, listen, the, the Sith are space mongols. Okay, the Sith are space mongols. Warian, <laughs> so are the Klingons. It's just space mongols. Oh no! <laughs> Thanks. And, I uh, hate it. Yeah, and after he defeats Kaidu, uh, uh, the uh, Kublai branch of the family uh, is more or less undisputed as the rulers of uh, China. In the in the sort of like collection of Mongolian mini empires that have broken out at this point, because uh, it's no longer a unified Mongolia. Um, however, thirteen oh seven, Temur dies. Oh no! And the power of the Mongol em emperors is immediately weakened. Power shifts away from the Khans towards the actual Chinese like governors. That are supposed to be under the cons. Uh, this is because no one can decide who should be uh, Temur's successor, and they all immediately start killing each other. Not on the battlefield, but like backroom schemes and like assassinations. Oh no, they really were playing the pol the politics game, the political schema. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah, 100% goes full Game of Thrones uh, in this, uh, and a number of children are made puppet emperors by various ministers. This is like Game of Thrones meets The Office. <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, and this whole death spiral goes from 1307 till the dissolution of the Empire in 1368. So like a, that's like a 50-year yeah. spiral. Yeah. Um, it is stabilized 61 year. in 1333 with the reign of Togun Temur, who is the last Mongolian emperor of China. He is made emperor at 13. Ah, uh, because that's the ripe old age you should be to take control over a group of people and an army. Yep. And the reason why he manages to hold on to power for so long, and why he is one that is um, this last long-reigning emperor, he rules for, you know, 35 years, is because... Things have gotten so bad in China that everyone kind of realizes, in the upper class at least, that they have bigger problems than killing each other. <laughs> there is widespread unrest and revolts in China. Um, a lot of Mongolian authorities haven't really been authorities at this point. There's been the local lords have not really been answering to anyone for, you know, almost 30 years at this point. So there's been a lot of arbitrary rulership, a lot of oppression, and a lot of overtaxation. <laughs> That's just a recipe it, for great things to happen. Yep. And what's more, uh, there's an ethnic divide between the Mongolian rulers doing this and the Chinese, the various ethnic Chinese people that they are doing it too. Not the damn Mongolians. So there's a there's a racial divide going on here as well. See, so just. The entire population hates them. The wall didn't work. The Mongols still controlled. <laughs> yep. Yep. Oh, no. What's more, what's more, the Mongolian um, 
policies haven't adapted to the new terrain. They're still implementing policies designed for um, herdsmen and steppe agriculture. They're still designing policies meant for uh, the deserts of Mongolia. This means that there are certain things like peasants are forbidden from killing game animals or from expanding their fields to grow enough food to survive. Do you know what loves to eat rice? Most of the things the Mongolians liked hunting. So when you can't protect your fields from most of its natural predators, you start dying. Oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. So massive famines. Uh, and what finally tips the scale against them is 1351. The Mongolians implement a water conservation project on the Yellow River. Now, ironically, this is the one thing the government is doing for the benefit of the people. <laughs> the, <laughs> the one attempt for positive outcome. Yeah. Because the Yellow River has been flooding frequently, and it has just been destroying everything. Villages, fields, everything. It is a major problem right now. That's why you don't build just, in a floodplain. Yep. And the attempt to... Basically, the government's response to controlling this just sparks a chain of rebellions in every village that gets news of it. Just each one, independent of of the others, just starts rebelling. Oh man, a powder keg effect. How bad? How bad could it have been? Uh, it's very bad because when it's not a single unified rebellion, that means you have to go to each village and crush it individually, which is expensive. And the government runs out of money trying to do this. Oh, no. <laughs> yep. What's worse is because it's the Yellow River rebelling, it means that Beijing, where all the Mongolian Khans are, uh, or where you know, the whole Yuan dynasty is, Yuan dynasty, uh, I gotta keep correcting myself here, basically where the emperor is, is cut off from all the grain supply, which is held in uh, uh, Zhejiang. <laughs> You mean their breadbasket rebelled and they no longer had food? And yep. the elites realized they goofed up? Yep. What's ironic is that the Chinese elites continue to support the Mongolian uh, emperors because the peasant rebellions aren't simple, like, political rebellions like these, uh, like they would be if they were organized at a higher level. No, this is straight up French Revolution, we eat the rich. <laughs> yeah, so they're gonna. They are. Team they are attacking in power. Yeah, they are attacking anyone with any semblance of wealth or power. Eat the rich. Eat the rich. It is. It is an anarchist movement. Is what is happening. Oh, jeez, God. The the Chinese have had some really good rebellions in their day. Yeah. True experts of it more so than the French, I would say. Yep. Yeah. Truly. Uh. Especially when you consider uh, a man by the name of Zhu Chongba, who basically takes over the empire. He, of all the rebels, he's a peasant, and he shows actual military talent. This man is the only one who is patient and tactical when fighting against the uh, government. And by 1368, he sacks Beijing. Oh, jeez. Yep. Becomes... Uh, takes the name Hongwu 
and founds the Ming Dynasty of China. Wow. Uh, yeah. Ending uh, the Wan Dynasty, uh, Tongan Temur flees into Mongolia and dies in 1370. The Mongolians continue to resist Hongwu until 1382, at which point it's kind of over and Hongwu is undisputedly made emperor of China. He establishes his capital in Nanjing uh, because Beijing is too close to the border with all those Mongols he just beat the heck out of. Smart idea. He decided to insulate himself from the perceived threat from the north. And the interesting thing that I find is Nanjing becomes the capital for the next like six six centuries after this. They become yep. the primary capital until long after the Japan comes in and uh Yeah. Yeah, it's it's the prime it's the primary capital up through World War Two, I believe. Yeah, and then once the People's Republic came in. Yeah, yeah, the POC and the PRC just changes everything. But uh that's not what this is about. Um <laughs> This is about the Mongolians. The, well, um, this is what established their capital. Do 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 do. Yep. And uh, fun fact: uh, he was pretty smart to do this because the Mongolians continued to attempt to retake China until 1455. Oh man, they do not like it. Uh, they they just intermittently will just run down out of the desert and just try to burn things. Um, oh, well, I mean, considering the, they use Beijing as a point of power, I imagine they were not too happy with losing that. No, they were not. And fun fact, um, because technically China and Mongolia were unified under the Wan Dynasty, both the Ming emperors of of China and the Mongolians living in Mongolia believe that they own each other's lands. Oh. No. They both make the claim that the other side is a subject of them. Territorial uh, land disputes. Yeah. So, uh, welcome to another hundred years of land war in Asia. <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh, there's just. I wish I could make something, some kind of joke or remark about it, but it's just all too common where you see these, like, long-standing land disputes and people lose their lives and fight over it all for things that are as goofily perceived as like oh yes we descend from the same people so i should own your land yeah well listen here's to be listen the, the joke for this is simply the sicilian uh in the princess bride uh the like third worst thing you can ever do in the world is start a land war in asia and that is very true. What's the first two? Uh, well, the first one is bet against the Sicilian when death is on the line. He ironically loses that bet. Well, then not a very good bet in my opinion. Yep. But uh, anyway, the, <laughs> the Wan <laughs> Dynasty is uh, only one of the several Khanites that spawn uh, with the... Uh, with the you know, rise of Kublai Khan and his subsequent fall. Ooh, who's next? Uh, the second is uh, the Chagatai Empire of Central Asia. Now, the Chagatai branch of Genghis Khan's family, because, again, everyone is just descended from Genghis Khan. Which uh, I think, what, 10% of the world can claim direct lineage to him? Something 
absurd. Yeah, it's it's something absurd, and that that's after about eight hundred years. Yeah. Uh, right now we are talking about like his like three or four legitimate sons and their grandchildren. <laughs> uh, so the Chagatai branch had been granted the Ulus uh, under Genghis Khan, uh, which was basically, uh, hey, you're my governor of this territory. It's sort of like being. Uh, uh, back when the British Empire owned everything, be a, being appointed governor of Egypt. You were in charge of running that place and could basically do whatever you wanted unless the crown told you otherwise. <laughs> so they were made uh, governors of two, uh, play, of a couple of different places, uh, Karakitai, the Tarim Basin, Transnoxia, and Afghanistan. What this effectively means is that they are ruling most of the former Persian Empire and India. Um, most of the population was uh, surprisingly Turkish, uh, which I thought was an interesting fact. Just looking at the various like shifting geography, these the borders for the Chagatai do are completely unstable. I mean, I feel like uh, the Ottomans get their revenge later on. Yeah, they are. It is a horribly unstable uh, uh, place. Um, the Chagatai's records themselves are very fragmented and very uh, contradictory. Um, from 1267 to 1301, a uh, familiar name, uh, Kaidu, is the ruler of the Chagatai. Yay, Kaidu! Now, yeah. Now, Chagatai, uh, all, you know, uh, sorry, Kaidu also belongs to the Ogadai branch as well, and is subsequently killed by uh, uh, <clears throat> by our friend uh, Temur uh, uh, over his attempts to conquer China. Oh no! <laughs> uh, yes, yeah. you know, you can you can see you, you can see how this um, works. Uh, they make multiple attempts to push into India. They kind of get like the northern, north, uh, western parts of it, but they just have a very hard time pushing into those jungles. So they don't really rule all of India, even though they kind of claim to. Like I said, the records are very confusing with these people. Yeah, it's interesting. Oh. They they basically tried to conquer into India through Afghanistan and across the Punjab plain, but just yep. not really had uh, the best luck. And afterwards, it just it did not work out very well for them. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, they have two big reasons for wanting to conquer India. The first is that Genghis Khan, prior to his death, had drafted up some initial plans, really just the basic idea of conquering India. So they have this sort of Roman Empire thing of uh, sort of like the Romans' relationship with Britain, where Julius Caesar wanted to conquer Britain, but he never got the chance. So I, as the emperor of Rome, will now attempt to conquer Britain and prove that I am as great a leader as the founder of my dynasty. Oh. It's that kind of uh, mentality of if I can do this, the one thing that the great founder wanted but never could achieve, then clearly I am undisputedly, undeniably the as great as him. If not greater because I completed his his biggest accomplishment. Yeah. yeah. Or his that greatest was, defeat. 
Yeah, it's great. Yeah, we, we we finished his great work. That's why Kublai gets to be the last like unified Khan, because he completes Genghis Khan's work in China. And basically, that's enough that for the most part, he is kind of undisputed as okay. Yeah, you would be the man in charge of everything, since you're the only one who managed to conquer to take something that Genghis Khan wanted. Yeah, that's you. Yeah. yeah. You have proven yourself to be somewhat worthy. Yeah, you've proved. Yeah, you've proven yourself a worthy successor to the great man himself. <laughs> uh, the second. Uh, reason why the Chagatai are obsessed with India is because of their borders. Now, during most of the Chagatai's history, uh, the Mongolian states don't really attack each other. At least not outside of just basic succession disputes, like the one between uh, Temur and uh, uh, Kaidu here. Uh, and the Chagatai are boxed in by other Mongolian states. Uh, they have the Wan of China to their east, and they have the Ilkhans in their west, meaning that they can't just go and try to like march towards Egypt and the Mediterranean. They can't go and march to the Pacific. They really have nowhere to go but into India, unless they want to start a full-on land war with one of their cousins. Yeah, that you, you go for the weakest link in the chain here. You don't try and stir up yeah. too much. Yeah, which uh, which Kaidu already proved that tem that the wands under Temur are strong enough to resist them. <laughs> so they really have no choice but to go for India, and during the very short four year reign of Duwa Khan, uh, which lasts from thirteen o one to thirteen o five, they make their push. And the Sultanate of Delhi barely survives it. But it survives. And the work remains uncompleted. Um, at which point we begin to see the dissolution of the Chagatai and their incorporation into the peoples they have now conquered. Uh, they become very firmly... Uh, much more uh, Afghani, much more Pakistani than they are Mongolian. For one thing, they adopt Islam as their uh, official state religion, and oh, the royal family, the royal family converts. Prior to this, uh, the royal family had practiced uh, primarily Mongolian spiritualism with a policy of universal religious tolerance. Oh, that's gonna change. That changes here with the uh, uh, with the Chagatai when in 1326, Tamarshiran Khan adopts Islam, and uh, from 1326 to 1347, problems start arising with this as the empire is split between east and west. Um, at the end of his rule in 1347, the very discontented Buddhists of the eastern half of the empire are accused of assassinating him on account of the fact that he refuses to allow their religion to exist. Yeah, I would... Uh, you know, it's always when there's change to religious policies that we tend to see a lot of extremist behaviors. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we, see, we do see that. Um, 
However, it could also just be propaganda of the now fully Islamified Khans looking for a scapegoat, looking for a reason to oppress the Buddhists. Uh, because this is a state religion, and these people are refusing to follow it. Um, the empire is saved and reunified under a man named uh, Tuluk Temur, who rules uh, from uh, 1347 to 1363. He unifies the Chagatai Empire. Um, however, like... Uh, like Temur over in the Yuan Dynasty, he is the last effective emperor of the Chagatai. And following his death in 1363, the rest of the Mongol Empire emperors are puppets of their ministers. Uh, because once again, I believe we have a lot of like child emperors or people dying without heirs. Uh, at which point... It ceased to be the Mongol Empire and became more of a Turkish state. Uh, they are, you know, they become integrated into the population. Power now once again rests not with the Mongolian conquerors, but with the ruling elites of the uh, peoples that were conquered. As soon as the bureaucrats get involved, you start seeing great rulers getting ousted. Coincidence? Yeah. I think not. No. no, the truly terrifying part is every time someone is named Temur, the empire immediately collapses. <laughs> we have Temur of the Wan Dynasty, we have Temur of the Chagatai Dynasty, and we had uh, Togun Temur, also of the Wan Dynasty, all being the people who have who who show up right before something goes horribly wrong. Just stop naming him Temur. We can't. It's an honorific to the uh, to Genghis Khan's birth name of Temujin. Oh, oof. There could only have been one. Yeah. Yeah, that brings us to number three on the list. <laughs> exactly. That's right. There's there there's more of these guys. These people break apart into a spectacular little uh, collage of nation states. But wait, there's more. Yep. The uh, Shabanid dynasty. Now, this is a group of the Chagatai that breaks away from the main Chagatai branch uh, when uh, the empire starts to divide itself during uh, Tamarshan Khan's rule and fully fragments after the death of Tulug Temur. This is this is the group that just says, "Yeah, we're not with you anymore. We're gonna go do our own thing." Yeah, we're gonna go over this way. We you're doing all right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, uh, and the Shabanid dynasty is, funnily enough, uh, founded by Shaban, son of Juchi, and grandson of Genghis. Um, these are the mountain people. They rule the lands east and southeast of the Ural Mountains. And in 1428, uh, somewhere between 1428 and 1468, actually, a man named Abul Ilkair makes himself ruler of the Uzbeks. Uh, as you can see with the Shabanid dynasty, the names have become Islamified, uh, reflecting the fact that the Mongolian Khans of this dynasty have integrated themselves with the local population while still remaining Khans. <laughs> so they've adopted Islam and Islamic traditions. Yep. Yep. They actually go through a series of minor conquests, too, because uh, Muhammad Shabani 
takes Bukhara and Herat from the Timurids, and he rules uh, Burkhara until 1599. Um, they also give rise to the Nogay Khans and the Astrakhan Khans, who rule uh, Transcaspia. And all these states um, are effectively Mongolian sultanates who can trace direct patrilineal descendants from Genghis Khan. Mm -hmm. um, for the most part, these dynasties show no Mongolian uh, features. They speak what is a dialect of Turkish known as Chagatai Turkish. They are culturally Islamic Persian. Um, and they are, for the most part, uh, just completely integrated into the population up in these mountains. Wow, so they just fully integrated in. Yep. They lost they fully, all their culture. Yep, they fully integrate, and they do a great job of it, because in uh, 1512, the Khanite of Kiva uh, becomes Shabanid. They take it over. Uh, they basically just start you know, collecting all these little Khanites that spawn up here and form them, mold them into their own little empire that is effectively Uzbekistan. Uh, they keep going because in the 1860s, 1860s, and 1870s, uh, the Russians begin to dominate in the area and turn uh, the uh, Shabanid uh, Khans into more of a vassal state. Mm. However, the Shabanids... Uh, still continue to thrive under the Russian Empire for a further 60 years. Until the Soviets came. Yeah. With World War One's conclusion and the conclusion of the, uh, um, what is it, October Uprising? Yeah. Yeah, and uh, the full conversion of the uh, Russian Empire into the Communist Soviet Union. The Soviets decide that they must do away with all things king or kingly, and proceed to immediately depose uh, Abd Allah, the last Shabanid Khan, and the last uh, ruling Khan in the world in 1920. So Genghis Khan's descendants had continued to rule until 1920. Yes, in theory, they yeah they ruled. Uh, there was a continuous rule of a direct descendant of Genghis Khan for 714 years. Yeah. Whew, no wonder, uh, uh, what, 10% or like a quarter of the world yeah. can uh, yeah. claim lineage? That's insanity. Yeah, yeah they are. <laughs> they rule a lot. The Shabanids, uh, well, they are arguably the least Mongolian of the Khanites and also the most successful. Well, that's because they basically integrated and hid in a pocket in the Ural Mountains. It's the smartest yeah. thing they could have done. Yeah. They continue, and they continue, like, just incorporating new territories. They just keep growing, just inch by inch. Do not and, look at yes. the empire in the Urals. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they're, they're, pretty, they're pretty slow. They're pretty insidious about it. They, they take their time. Yeah, um, a slow boil is a, is a boil at the end, you know? Yeah. And that's going to bring us to the first of, uh, the, of the two, like, bigger parts of this uh, outside of the Chinese one. Uh, in the Wan Dynasty. Uh, what was arguably my personal favorite in researching this, which would be the Ilkhans of Iran. Now, these people were the inheritors of the Ulus of Ulegu, 
uh, Hulegu was a descendant of Genghis Khan, who was extremely hostile to Islam. He was an he was an Islamophobe, or as they are otherwise known, an American. Uh, the first true-blooded American. He hated. <laughs> he was an Islamophobe. Oh, God. Yeah. We we do not uh, condone Islamophobia. We support our Islamic brethren. Yeah, no. Here, the historical joke, the, humans. The joke was too easy and too cancelable. <laughs> we we are not. We do not support hatred in any form, unless um, it's on redacted. <laughs> yeah, and this uh, this Islamophobia results in major diplomatic breaches with the other Khanites. Uh, most particular of which is the Golden Horde, which we'll be discussing uh, later. Uh, the Golden Horde at this time is ruled by Burke, brother of Batu, and Burke had converted to Islam. And Hulegu was so uh, offended by this that he refused to acknowledge the ruler of a separate Ulus having that religion. Dang, that's... It's not someone who answers to him. And he can't stand it. I fail to recognize your new religion, sir. Yep. Oh, no. Yep. What's interesting, too, is that this uh, religious split also quickly gets a political factor as well. Oh, no. The ascension of Kublai Khan uh, as Khan of all Mongols is disputed uh, for, you know, for a period of time. Uh, and... Hulagu backs Kublai, whereas Burke backs Eriboje, uh, who loses. Uh, you know, Bur Burke backs what is ultimately the usurper, rather than the uh, true heir as Kublai wins that fight. It's a tale as old as time. You choose the wrong side, you lose. Yeah. My family now, knows that the hard way. Yeah. Now, Burke has the benefit of being in Russia. <laughs> <laughs> and thus away from everybody else's reach unlike the Chagatai he is not encircled by other Khanites who can immediately beat the shit out of him if he tries to start something uh, the same goes uh, for uh, Hulegu who is effectively ruling uh, the Near East he is ruling what we would consider the Levant, Saudi Arabia uh Syria, places like that. And unfortunately for him, that means that not only is he an Islamophobe in the Islamic heartland, but his nearest neighbor is Egypt, whom he immediately becomes hostile with. <laughs> yeah. Oh, great, great way to make friends with the new neighbors. Yeah. His just hatred of everyone around him and in his life and existing results in the first uh, time a uh, a uh, was it a Mongolian uh, power allies with a foreign nation to attack another Mongolian hey team up with me this guy's kind of a dick <laughs> basically basically in fact uh yeah, in fact, this even predates uh, the fighting between the Chagatai in the Wan, which uh, occurs in 1301, 
Uh, as in 1261, Burke leads the Golden Horde in an alliance with the Mamluks of Egypt against uh, Holegu. Damn. Yeah. Let's uh, get political. Political. Yeah. <laughs> now, this has a surprising benefit for Hulegu because it's the mid-13th century. Which means that we do, in fact, have crusader states. Oh, no. <laughs> and seeing a fellow Islamophobe under attack by a pair of Muslim states, the the uh, holy kingdoms of Tripoli and Acre, Acre uh, align with the Ilkhans against the Egyptians. Jesus. Why, is, why are the crusaders involved with everything? Because there's a war going on. That's all they do. It's literally the definition of a crusade. <laughs> Means literally holy war. Yep. Haven't we had enough of those? This then gets worse. Okay. Because four years later, 1265, a Baga Khan comes to power. Now, Abaga has a very interesting, um, shall we say, uh, political board before him. As Abaga is married to the daughter of Byzantine Emperor Michael the Eighth Paleologus. So he's quite literally got ties to the Byzantines. Yep. yep. That's, now, <laughs> if that's not a political appointment or a religious statement, I don't know what is. Yeah, it gets worse. How? How does it get because worse? Because of this. Do the because popes get involved? Oh, not yet. It gets worse before it even gets to them. Oh, God. So, because of this, Abaga tries to increase ties with Christian states. Okay. He does this by favoring the Nestorian patriarchs with, within his lands. Fun fact, Nestorians are considered heretical by both the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church, which comprise his two main allies of the Crusader states and the Byzantine Empire. Jeez. <laughs> but they're the only Christians living in his land by virtue of the fact that they can go to the Muslims and say, hey, those crazy people in Europe, they want to kill me more than they want to kill you. <laughs> Let's be friends. Yeah. Now, Abaga is not the diplomat he tries to be, as he fails to conquer Egypt and he fails to secure Christian support for his conquests. Meaning he's left on his own to basically flounder about uselessly. Flounder. And by uselessly, I mean killing thousands. Like any good ruler does. Like any good con. 1282, this man dies. Okay, probably not takes, the worst thing. It takes two years for them to figure out who his successor is. Who goes next? Who goes next? Uh, truly a Byzantine uh, dynasty if you've ever seen one. <laughs> God, those people had some succession issues. 
for those who don't know, the Byzantines had a habit of deposing emperors, and then that emperor either returning to power, or that emperor's brother attempting to overthrow the new emperor, only for that emperor's brother to overthrow both of them. <laughs> it gets messy real fast, and uh, it starts to get messy here. From 1284 to 1291, we have the reign of Argon. Now, Argon does a somewhat smart thing. And he decides that unlike his two predecessors, he's going to engage in some form of religious tolerance. Oh, wow. For what a Buddhists. Rare, what a rare concept. Although, to be fair, the Buddhists are the most chill. Yeah. For Buddhists. Keep in mind, he is ruling Mecca. Oh. And he... <laughs> he is just in the middle yeah yeah and uh once again like his uh predecessor before him he tries to be the diplomat he uh tries and fails to make alliances with both pope nicholas the fourth there's the and pope. Philip, yep and philip the fair of france um he then makes what is arguably um, a sign that the world is very much drenched in stereotypes at this point as he makes what is considered a mistake simply because other people are horrible human beings. Oh no. In 1288, four years into his reign, yeah. he appoints a man called Sa'ad Ad Dalwa as Inspector General of the Treasury. Would you like to guess what uh, Mr. Aldalwa's religion is? Oh, let me guess. Treasury, he's probably Jewish. Correct. And because a Jewish man is now in charge of the Empire's funds, anti-Semitic riots break out throughout the Empire. Oh. Because, God forbid, this no. stereotype not result in violence. You know... Anti-Semitism has a very long and storied history that is both very tragic and full of stories like this. Ugh. It's not even a mistake. It's just other people have been in a world where, thanks to his predecessors and partially him, religion has been a source of oppression that the second anyone who is not one of them gets anything, they immediately turn violent. Something different attack! Yep. 1291 to 1295, we see the reign of uh, Gaikatu. Now, Gaikatu is arguably one of, if not the only, forward-thinking member of this dynasty. For one reason. He is willing to look at what the other Khans uh, have been doing in their own territory and take notes. Uh, the key of those notes is he takes paper money based on the Chinese model that is being run by their good friends over uh, in the Wan Dynasty. So when you're saying he's taking notes, he's taking quite literal bank notes, financial notes. Yep. yep. Unfortunately... People don't get it. It makes no sense to the people. It is 
poorly implemented, probably because people keep rioting whenever someone tries to appoint a head of the treasury. Why would I use this new paper money when my coins are just as good? They yep. don't want me to have my coin. And uh, this attempt results in the near total collapse of the Ilkhan economy. Oh, man. What a colossal, colossal and, crumble. Yeah. And is more or less directly related to the rise of Mahmud Ghazan, who, who succeeds Gataku and rules from 1295 to 1304. This guy reforms the economic and administrative st structure of the Ilkhans. Uh, he also converts uh, to Islam, uh, which is a major break from a largely Islamophobic uh, ruling class. Uh, this is probably pragmatism at this point, as Muslims do make up the majority population, and you've been oppressing them for close to 100 years and have just crashed their economy. They need a reason to like you. We're under new management. Now with more Islam. Yeah. Uh, but don't worry. He still has a plan to prove to his uh, fellow members of his family and to the rest of the Khans that he is still a member of the Ilkhanite dynasty because he's going to introduce religious persecution against Buddhists. That's right. Being Zen counts as idolatry now. He's being idolatrious. Idolatrious. Uh, basically um yeah it's it's kind of hilarious they got protected by like one and then they get immediately persecuted by like almost the next guy in line because yeah. argon protects them and then uh gazan just immediately starts trying to get rid of them it's it's hilarious in a truly twisted and horrible way <laughs> um what this does do for him is it allows for the assimilation of the Mongols and the Turks in Iran. It removes the religious divide. Uh, it allows for him to basically say, I'm different enough from the Mongolians to be my own independent entity. He declares independence from uh, the Khanite of Beijing, uh, in, uh, which is uh, prompted by the death of Kublai Khan in 1294 and the subsequent attempts by the Chagatai to take over said dynasty. You know, that's the markers of a very powerful and strong relationship where under the duration of their lifetime, you guys have good relations. And the second they die, you go, I'm out. Yeah. I'm afraid of you. The next guy, not as strong, I'm out. We'll take yeah. our chances. Yeah, it also helped that the people between them and the dynasty in China were now enemies of the dynasty in China, which meant that there was no safe passage for the Chinese uh, dynasty to just come over and start messing up Iran and the rest of it. Buffer state. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Uh, 1304 to 1316 sees the reign of Oljetu, who is a Nestorian Christian who converts to Islam he actually was baptized by Pope Nicholas IV as part of those failed attempts to get the Christians to please, oh dear God, please help us rule this country. <laughs> um, so yeah, he is baptized by a Pope and he chooses to mark the final break from the Mongolian way of life towards this more Muslim Iranian way of life because he does not take the title of Khan when he becomes emperor. 
he takes the title Sultan. Sultan of Sweden. Yeah. And he is the only one to use both Muslim and Mongolian dates in his letter to Philip IV of France. Uh, he he uses both dating systems. This is a sign that he is getting away from the Mongolian way of things and more towards the uh, local Muslim way of things uh, by using how they uh, measure time and the world. Um, he also commissions uh, uh, Rashid al-Din's uh, Jami al Tararik, uh, which is the collection of chronicles. It's the first ever attempt at a true world history, and it covers the history of the Mongols, India, China, and France. Uh, so yeah, world. <laughs> All the important bits, at least. Yeah. 1317 sees the rise of the 13-year-old uh, Abu Sayyid, uh, who rules until 1335, and he's the first Ilkhan to bear a full Muslim name. And his rule is marked because he takes the throne at 13 by power struggles and the disintegration of the Ilkhans. Uh, their entire political identity ends with his death in 1335. They just tear themselves apart. Because having two Muslim rulers in a, you know, hundred and so hundred plus years of rule of islamophobic rule in a muslim state is not going to be enough the last two are just not enough to save it and that ends the ill cons oh does this mean we get to go over to the golden horde yep that's gonna be, yes that's our last uh sort of breakaway state or uh, i guess successor state following the dissolution of the idea of a unified mongolia is the golden horde also known as the kipchak khanite it was the ulus of fatu son of jochi son of genghis that direct connection again yep and from 1257 to 1267 it was under the reign of burke brother of batu who is the aforementioned Muslim Khan. Uh, that immediately causes Hulegu and the Ilkhanites to basically declare them persona non grata. Uh, the politics of the Golden Horde spend most of its time because of this, uh, as uh, being focused on how to exploit their rivalry with the Ilkhans. Uh they attempt to march through the Caucasus Mountains and occupy a, uh, Iran, which, as anyone will tell you, is a damn fool stupid idea. <laughs> it is a bad idea. But the alternative would be going through Europe and attempting to conquer the Byzantine Empire on the way, and that's really not a good idea either. If you think you're going to conquer Iran, you're going to have a bad time. Yep. Yeah, they... Uh, they regularly formed a bunch of anti-Persian military and trade alliances, just basically anything we can do to make sure that either you trade with us or you trade with them, not both. Uh, not too hard to do since everyone surrounding the Elkhans kind of hates them. Why are you all so angry with me? Um, yep. Yeah. Uh, one of the fun things about this, though, is that because of how this alliance shakes out, 
a lot of Egyptian artists uh, come to uh, Sare Batu on the lower Volga River and basically form what is known as the Kipchak art style. Uh, as it's basically Egyptian artists attempting to perform, uh, from description, either local or Mongolian art. Hmm, interesting. So it was an, it's an, it's a, it's basically an Egyptian version of Mongolian art in, you know, in in Russia. <laughs> uh, there was a general religious vacuum here. There was there weren't a lot of Nestorians and there weren't a lot of Buddhists, which were the two religions that the Mongolians were the most familiar with. And this allowed uh, Islam to become the major religion in the uh, in the Golden Horde, as it was the nearest major religion that the Mongolians really knew about that they could also find in their own territory. <laughs> or in this territory, at least. Um, that said, they were very tolerant, uh, and by very, I mean they allowed it to continue existing, uh, towards the Orthodox Christianity of their new Russian subjects, <laughs> who the Mongolians looked at really weird, because it's like, so you're the Nestorians, and the Orthodox Christians went, no, we're not with them. But you're a Christian. Yeah, we're Christian. They're not. But they say they're Christian, but they're not. <laughs> And it's just this back and forth that just the the the, the golden horde just does not get this religious uh, <laughs> bullshit that is going on right now, because you both claim to be Christians. Like, all right, you know, we don't know what's going on with the Christian thing over here. We're just going to be Muslim. <laughs> this is just easier. Let's figure this. We're out. We're, we're done with this. Yes. Yeah. Uh, what this leads to is the ethnic Russians forming strong ties with Orthodox Christianity to the point that it becomes tied to a Russian national identity and a Russian ethnic identity. Um, as you, as if you are not uh, Orthodox, you are not Russian because the non-Orthodox people living in Russia are these Mongolians. <laughs> Look at them. With their horses and their big hats. No, early early forms of othering. Gotta love it. Yeah, you gotta love it. Um, for the most part, the Golden Horde uh, takes a back seat to governance, unlike the other places like the Wan Dynasty, the Chagatai, uh, the Ilkhans, the the uh, Shabanids. They don't actually try for direct rule. Instead, what they go for is tribute. You are allowed to do whatever you want on your land. You're allowed to do whatever you want with your people, just so long as you pay us not to murder you. Mafia style, I love it. Yeah, they remain the truest to what the Mongols were. Give me money, or my horses will come riding down and kill everyone. You will hear the sound of a thousand horses clamoring at once. The sound yeah. of the thunder shall echo through the valleys. Yeah. And I beheld a white, and I beheld a pale horse, and his rider's name was Death. Exactly. Yeah. You can guarantee you they use that uh, to uh, their degree, uh, and they collected the their tribute from the Russian city states through a specially appointed uh, baska. I have no idea how to say this word. B a s q a q. Um. 
one of the things that they end up doing actually is they transfer the Russian identity, the idea of what is Russian and what isn't, uh, ceases to be based out of what's in Kiev and becomes based out of what's in Moscow, marking the split between what is now Russian and Ukrainian identities. Hmm. It's the it's the golden horde. It's the Mongolians that caused that to happen. Uh, for the most part, the golden horde is pretty laid back. They're content to trade with the Genoese in Italy and the Byzantines in Turkey, um, and they actually help the Byzantine Empire stay in power. Uh, they help the Byzantines fight many wars with Bulgaria, simply because a change in the status quo is not beneficial to them. They're collecting taxes from Ukraine and Russia. They're trading with Italy and uh, and and the Byzantines. They don't want a new neighbor. They don't want a new power on their doorstep. They just want to sit there and get rich. I mean, do you blame them? If you got it good, I wouldn't want to mess with things. Yeah, no. So they actually end up helping all these other people out, uh, specifically the Byzantines, because the Byzantines are always at war with someone. <laughs> Oh, jeez. And it's usually not the Byzantines who started it, too. Um, and because of this, uh, and so one of the things that ends up happening is the steppes have a strong Turkish presence, and the Mongols favor the steppes, which leads to a disappearance of the Mongol tradition within Turkish traditions. The Turkish language replaced the Mongol language, and the intermarriage between the Turkish uh, of the steppes and the Mongolians who moved in there uh, forms what is known as the Islamic Tartars of Russia. And this is, honestly, this is a very, uh, this is a very, uh, I'd almost say American melting pot of cultural identities. Because the Islamic Tartars uh, are effectively uh, a new culture formed out of Mongolian, Turkish, uh, Volga Bulgarian, and Volga Finnish identities. So you've got Vulgar Bulgaria, Mongolia, Turkey, and Finland all converting to Islam and forming this new identity in Russia. We're all in this together. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. Uh, in 1267 and until 1280, uh, Burke is succeeded by Mengu Temur. Remember that rule we had about Temurs? Uh, it is happening again. As soon as someone gets named Temur, they die. Well, uh, guess what? Uh, that happens too. The Golden Horde becomes independent of the Khanite in Beijing. They are the first to break ranks uh, with the Wan Dynasty. They are the only ones to break to to, to break ranks uh, with uh, with the uh, Wan Dynasty. Well, Kublai is alive. Oh, important distinction. Yeah, this breaking of ranks directly uh, is directly tied to uh, Kublai's own little civil war against. Uh, I forget who it was, but I believe he has to kill his brother because uh, his brother refuses to acknowledge him as a result of this. Uh, 
Uh, yeah, so it, it's uh, it gets pretty bad uh, for over there, but not for uh, not for our people up here. Now, in 1280, Mengu Temur dies, and the power rests with Noge instead of the legitimate cause. Now, Noge is a distinguished military leader who united the Eastern Tartars against the central court of the Khans and basically starts an armed rebellion with most of the with most of the practical power backing him. Uh, the legitimate Khans, uh, a man named uh, which are led by a man named uh, Toktu, uh, do defeat him after 19 years of civil war. Jeez, that was a battle and a half. Yep. Toktu only comes to power 10 years after Mengu Temur dies. He takes over in 1290, uh, defeats Noge and his rebellion in 1299, and rules until about 1312. And really, putting down this rebellion is the one notable act of his life. <laughs> uh, the His successor, a man by the name of Ozbeg, will rule until 1342. And this is where the Golden Horde truly becomes golden. This man is the Golden Horde at the height of its splendor, at the height of its power. Uh, this is this is their uh, this is their peak. Uh, he is uh, an energetic ruler. Uh, Islamic culture flourishes under him. He actually gives his name to Uzbekistan for all the work he ends up doing there. Uzbek, Uzbek, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Um, he's also the reason everything falls apart because he makes a very critical mistake. Um, he makes the mistake of appointing Ivan the first of Moscow as Grand Duke. Now, Ivan the first is going to start a little thing called Russia. Is he the one that gets the lovely dubious little title after his name? Uh, no, Ivan Ivan the fourth is Ivan the Terrible. Okay, so Ivan the first. Bad. Yeah, first of his name, not that bad. <laughs> yeah, Ivan. Uh, yeah, yeah. His full name is Ivan Danilovich Kalita, uh, Grand Prince of Moscow and Grand Duke of Vladimir. Oh no! Uh, what this does is it ends up putting the power for a unified Russian identity in Moscow in the hands of a man is actually capable of pulling it off uh ivan is much more clever and much more able than he is given credit for by the mongolians uh and the golden horde severely underestimates him uh simply because they're at the height of their power why would this uh you know collection of peasant cities ever unify against them if they haven't for the last you know 80 years why would they hate us? We they have it good. Yeah, but you know they they it, they're just not seen as having the power to organize themselves and counter and you know basically counter the uh, golden horde. Ivan the first, however, is very good at his job. Uh then begins the unification process of the city states, turning them from tiny little rivals to a serious force to be reckoned with. <laughs> Uh, when you're overqualified for your job. Yep. Uh, 
1354, the Ottoman Turks reached the Dardanelles. There's the Ottomans. Um, which, uh, yeah, which effectively cuts the Golden Horde off from Egypt, Southern Europe, and the Mediterranean Sea. What this means is that all their allies and all their trade partners are now on the other side of a major imperial power that is now acting as a brick wall. Um, they just, there's, there's just, all, all their friends are too far away to help them. They're, they're on their own. And that's gonna kind of mark the beginning of the end. Uh, as in 1342, we have the beginning of the rule of Johnny Bag, uh, who rules until 1357. Uh, so the, you know, they, they are the ones who see the Ottoman Turks, uh, kind of take over the Dardanelles. They're the ones who get to see the writing on the wall. They don't live long enough to do anything about it. Because in 1357, they are at war with the Persians. And they proceed to actually take uh, Tabriz. However, that same year, Johnny Beg dies. And their death prevents the uh, assimilation of, the, of Azerbaijan into the Golden Horde. Seeing someone get conquered by the Golden Horde and yet somehow retain their entire independence really starts destroying things for these people. Hey, why do they get to be free when we're not? Yep. Uh, the Grand Duchy of Lithuania uh, occupies Ukraine. <laughs> oh, which poor was, Ukraine. Which was a uh, major Golden Horde territory. Which means that it's the Golden Horde's borders that are getting encroached on now. Uh, by the Lithuanians, of all people, too. Those bastards. Like, I'll take unexpected hero for 500, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, 1378 is when we see our next notable ruler for these people, as the ensuing, like, 21 years is just a, just, it's just a series of confused mistakes. <laughs> Uh, from 1378 to 1395, we have the reign of Toktamish, who is the last undisputed Khan of the Golden Horde. And he makes the, uh, the tactical decision of allying with what is known as the White Horde, which is a bunch of people from Western Siberia uh, who are led by descendants of a man called Orda, Orda had been Batu's eldest brother, Batu being the founder of the Golden Horde. However, Orda had been overlooked uh, in the grand scheme of successions and had been left to, you know, to do his own thing in the icy wastelands of Siberia, where everyone promptly forgot about him. So yeah, they're back. <laughs> so <And> back. <laughs> they're back. Uh... And surprisingly enough, they're actually managed to be good friends with uh, with Batu and Burke, their two younger brothers, uh, people in the Golden Horde. This is not a betrayal. Uh, as with the help of the White Horde, they renew the vassalage of Moscow, which had been getting free following the disasters in Ukraine and Azerbaijan. And, you know, the whole putting Ivan the first in charge of the whole thing you idiots. 
Not that they could have seen it coming, but still, it's fun to insult Mongolians from, uh, you know, 600 years in the future. Um, however, uh, the Golden Horde does not get the resurgence it needs to survive. As there is a man called Tamerlane who invades the Golden Horde. Uh, now, Tamerlane is the emir of the Timurid Empire, uh, which is sort of a uh, what you would call uh, basically uh, what's the word? Uh, he's he's the ruler of post Ilkhan uh, and post uh, Chagatay like Afghanistan. He's the guy who takes over after the uh, after the Mongolians fall apart there, and uh, he invades the Golden Horde. He fails to take any territory, but Tamerlane is not one of history's most uh, feared warlords for nothing. His attacks are so devastating that the Tartars disintegrate with the death of uh, Tokhtamish, uh, their ruler, in 1395. They, he, they're in such a weakened position that when their leader dies, they have no clear answer to who should succeed him. Uh, fun fact with Tamerlane, uh, his tomb was discovered three weeks before Operation Barbarossa was launched with the inscription above the door reading, he who disturbs my rest shall unleash an evil worse than me. Operation Barbarossa being the German invasion of Russia during World War II. Who? He was found by Russian archaeologists as well. Oh, no. Not a good time to be found, let's be real. Yeah, no. The, the, and this and Operation Barbarossa achieves the same thing that Tamerlane does in Russia. Just mass murder. <laughs> oh, just a lot of evil. Yeah. Uh, Tamerlane was not one of history's good guys, and he knew it. <laughs> uh, the uh, On the plus side, though, because of Tamerlane so heavily weakening the Tartars... This is now the chance for the uh, Kingdom of Moscow to strike, and it rises up and overthrows uh, the Tartars and becomes a major power and the center of the Russian government for basically forever. And so they grow to their own um, their own light stage. They grow up. Yeah, they, they come out, yeah. Congratulations. I, <laughs> yeah, it gets pretty bad. By the middle of the 15th century, so about 50 years after this happens... The only members of the Golden Horde remaining are the independent Khanites of Astrakhan, Kazan, and Crimea. Um, and some of these start getting gobbled up a little bit. Um, uh, as the Khanites of Astrakhan, Kazan, and Crimea do endure into the 16th century... However, any remnant of the Golden Horde with them, or as a part of them, or any Golden Horde territory associated with them, is also long gone. Uh, by 1783, we have Khan Shahin uh, Jirai of Crimea. He is deposed by Russia, marking the last Genghisid ruler of Europe. 
That's right. He's the last. He's the last. Uh, the, he's the last direct patrilineal descendant of Genghis Khan in Europe, <laughs> and he's deposed by the Russians. And thus we end the yeah. cause. Thus we end the cause, which is just funny because the Russians kind of take out the last of all of them. They take out the last one in Europe, and then the Soviets take out the last one in the world in 1920 with uh, Abdul Allah as the Khan. Not to mention Moscow is the new Rome, right? They can keep telling themselves that. <laughs> all roads keep leading to Moscow, ironically. Well, not anymore. <laughs> There's some, have you seen the Finnish border closings? Oh, man. But we figured that this would be a good continuation from the topic discussion last year. It was a very interesting one. And like Kala mentioned, upon doing research, our research department started going down numerous rabbit holes. And we had to well, have a bunch of rescue expeditions with no, the long ladders. No, no. Fun fact, we didn't go down rabbit holes. This is just a direct chart of the timeline of Genghis Khan ruling the world. So is that why we needed so much rope and so much ladder to rescue you from that giant hole? Listen, it's it's just massive. His you know, once the you know, once the Mongolian Empire breaks apart, it just keeps going and going and going like if we want to go down rabbit holes we have all of tamerlane over there that man's worthy of a whole episode in of himself <laughs> if you'd like to see an episode on tamerlane leave a comment down below and thank you guys for watching we hope you're excited about season three we are we have a lot of great topics coming and just be sure to stay tuned thank you guys for following along so far we're only getting better see ya yeah.